program featuring Free Speech Radio News news stories preempted earlier this week, followed by today's FSRN program. Stay with us. Haiti finds itself in a sea of turmoil as presidential elections in the troubled Caribbean nation were recently delayed for the fourth time. Business elites have called for U.N. soldiers in the country to crack down on poor neighborhoods, while a general strike gripped Haiti on Monday. Aaron Lakoff has more from Port-au-Prince. As January the 8th passed, the day the presidential elections were supposed to be held in Haiti, but delayed again for the fourth time, the Caribbean nation finds itself in a state of violence and strife. On Saturday morning, General Vassilar, the Brazilian head of the United Nations military mission in Haiti, was found dead in his hotel room from an apparent suicide. Meanwhile, Reginald Boulos, head of the Haitian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and sweatshop owner Andy Aped, called for a general business strike to commence on Monday. The goal of the strike, to pressure MINUSTA, the UN stabilization mission in Haiti, to crack down harder on poor areas of Port-au-Prince. Impoverished neighborhoods such as Cité Soleil are seen to be strongholds for favored presidential candidate René Préval and his Lavalas party. Residents of Cité Soleil have come under intense UN fire over the last week. Dionard and May, whose wife Annette Moléon was killed by Minusta forces on Wednesday, explains. While the shooting was happening, she was with two children, and she said to the children, leave where you are, because there is shooting here, and then one ran away, and at the same time one stood there, and in the same way, when he saw the shooting, he ran, and ducked under a table, and hid himself there. It is when they didn't hear any more shooting that he stuck his head out, but Minusta was shooting there, where he stuck his head out, and there he sustained a bullet wound to his mouth that exited the back of his head, and he died on the spot. They came to get me. They told me, there, your wife is dead, and I came and picked her up. Mariella, another eyewitness to UN shooting, explains the violence that took place in the Cité Soleil marketplace on Wednesday. While we were sitting there, those foreigners, they began to fire. All of us, the market vendors, we had to lie on the ground. Then there was a market vendor who died in the market. You must see the bullet holes, all the parts of those poles, how they're riddled with bullets. Then they shot us, taking us to the ground. There were people who sustained bullet wounds, and until now, there are people in the hospital. There are people whose feet are broken. Who fired? Minusta fired on the people at the marketplace. Then we lied on the ground. They made all of our chests completely flat. They were firing, so we stayed there. We didn't receive any intervention. We didn't find any reporters to come. Many residents of Cité Soleil are angered by the role that Minusta is playing and see them as pandering to Haiti's elite. Some have described their actions as political cleansing prior to the elections. Jean-Joseph Joel of Fanmi Lavalas. 
We think that the international community must now try to redefine its policy in Haiti. MINUSTA must cease being manipulated by the private business sector. Stop taking orders from the hands of Baker, Boulos, and Aped at the detriment of the masses to destroy the people of Cité Soleil, Bel Air, Soleno, La Fossette, to destroy all who live in popular neighborhoods. Elections are now scheduled to take place on February 7th with a runoff on March 19th. The elections, which many Haitians call selections, come after democratically elected President Jean-Bertrand Aristide was ousted on February 29th, 2004 in a coup d'etat sponsored by the U.S., France, and Canada. This is Aaron Lakoff reporting for Free Speech Radio News in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. The Israeli political system has undergone an extraordinary shakeup in the last two months, with the country witnessing not only the formation of a new major centrist party, Kadima, but now the man at its helm, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, has effectively stepped out of politics due to a stroke. FSRN's Erica Vols gets this Israeli perspective on what impact Sharon's departure will have on future prospects for peace with the Palestinians. While some Palestinians have personally welcomed the political demise of Sharon, there has been much pessimism over whether any new player will improve the prospects for a peace deal with Israel. However, within the Israeli peace activist movement, while many would not have personally wished illness on Sharon, nevertheless they see it as an opportunity for a renewed push at peace. Danielle Ophir is the Jerusalem head of pacifist activist group Peace Now. I think that Sharon was a very big obstacle for peace. Even even though he made the disengagement from Gaza, he didn't have an objective of reaching peace with the Palestinians. And that's why his, uh, his stepping out uh, might open new possibilities. Despite the shock departure of Sharon as the head of the new centre party, Kadima, Pre-election polls show the party may still receive as many as 40 mandates, or seats, out of a total of 120 at the March 28 election. This could make it the party able to form government. Yuri Dromi is a political analyst with the Jerusalem-based Israel Democracy Institute and a former spokesperson of Yitzhak Rabin. He believes Kadima's new leader, Ehud Olmert, Sharon's former right-hand man, has the capability to consolidate this position and push the peace agenda further than Sharon would have. Ehud Olmert is a very capable uh, politician. He, he's been around for uh, 30 years in the Knesset. He held uh, top ministerial uh, positions. He was twice the mayor of Jerusalem, which is the most difficult city in the world. And also he is uh, a decision maker. I mean, he can make tough decisions. He also is bold in expressing his uh, his views if you remember he even preceded Sharon in, in expressing his uh, ideas about the need to pull out of Gaza while Yuri believes Kadima's share of the vote may drop without Sharon at the helm he says its platform of unilateral disengagement pulling out of some of the occupied territories without peace talks has captured the attention of Israel's voters the truth is that Kadima, uh, with Sharon or without Sharon, really fulfills a um, urge or a need or desire by the Israelis for normalcy, for for the center. 
which was lost to the radicals uh, from both left and right. So I think Kadima still, whether or not they, they'll have uh, 40 mandates is, is another thing, but I think they'll be a strong party, maybe the biggest party. Israel's proportional representation system means coalitions with other parties are a necessity. Daniel Ophir with Peace Now believes the best chance for real negotiations with the Palestinians lies in a Kadima coalition with Labour and other left-wing parties. Labour is currently the only major party with peace negotiations formally on its agenda. In contrast, the other major party, the right-wing Likud, remains supportive of building Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Daniel remains concerned that as Kadima has currently not stated its opinion on the really tough issues, such as the fate of Jerusalem and some settlements in the West Bank, it needs a partner like Labour to keep it on track. And that's why it is important that uh, in this election, more Israelis would vote uh, the left-wing parties that even not as prime ministers will be uh, able to affect the political uh, way. This is Erica Vols reporting from Jerusalem for Free Speech Radio News. Iran's supervisory board on the press ordered the closure of a daily newspaper last week and it banned a new women's biweekly magazine. This is the first time the new ultra-conservative Iranian government has ordered the closure of publications since August. Both publications say they will announce plans for the future of their work this week. Iranian affairs correspondent Saida Jamshidi has the story. This is the fourth time the daily business newspaper Asia has been ordered to close down. Now, the Minister of Islamic Education and Guidance has leveled strong accusations against the paper, which include publishing photos of improperly dressed women, publishing stories that compromised Iran's national security, and for being anti-Islamic. Each one of these accusations carries a heavy sentence under Iranian law. All of these accusations are disgusting, worthless, and meaningless. I don't believe that even people in the Ministry of Islamic Education and Guidance would ever buy such ideas themselves. That's Ira Jamshidi, the chief editor of the Asia newspaper who previously had been imprisoned for 400 days and interrogated more than 109 times. Since 2002, I spoke with different radio stations, including BBC, Voice of America, and Radio France International, about the changes in Iran and the Middle East, giving an expert analysis. What I said during these interviews led me to being accused by Iranian government of being a spy for England and America. They said that publishing photos and reporting stories about American politicians and diplomats in the region, especially U.S. Secretary of State's Mrs. Rice's policies in the Middle East showed my interest toward America and the West. What are seen by reformists as unrealistic accusations against their newspapers over the past five years had led to the temporary suspension of distribution of more than 100 publications. Bahman Bakhtiari is a professor of political science in the University of Maine and is an observer of Iranian politics. What you have in Iran today, you have transformation and a lot of change without democratization. Less and less democracy for people, less and less human rights, and less and less press freedom. And the future of this government cannot be that good. 
With the ultra-conservative government that came to power in the summer of 2005, along with the conservative parliament, the country is in hands of just one political group. But this may be to Iran's disadvantage. Again, Bahman Bakhtiari. I think the level of tension right now in Iran is the highest I can remember since really 1979-1980 hostage crisis in Iran. I cannot recall such a high level of international tension against Iran caused by the government of Iran, mostly. Uh, the Iranian government is taking a very risky road, and this particular government in Iran is so religiously tied and dogmatic. As suicide bombers continue to target both military personnel and civilians in Iraq, the U.S. military is continuing to implement a new tactic in the country's occupation. A village in northern Iraq is now the testing ground for Operation Verdun, where U.S. military bulldozers are building a three-meter-tall wall of sand intended to block entry and exit from Alcinia, an area where U.S. troops have seen high numbers of casualties in recent weeks. Salam Talib and Eliana Kaya have more. Villagers watched from rooftops as U.S. military bulldozers heaved a wall of sand into snaking lines around their homes Saturday in an apparent attempt to trap insurgents believed to be hiding among them. Spanning 10 kilometers and broken by watchtowers to be manned by Iraqi security forces, the crude three-meter-tall barrier is the army's latest tool to rout out insurgents. Faris al-Azawi, an Iraqi journalist, wrote about the wall in the Iraq for All news website. We wrote about Al-Saniya village, which is located up in Beji city. It seems that they are trying to copy the security around the green zone in every city in Iraq. And these walls are a kind of security that's just like an American base. So we can say that they are trying to make every small village like a military base. This is part of their plan, to build military bases all around Iraq. The U.S. Army said it told the village of the operation just hours before it began and plan to broadcast Arabic messages over loudspeakers until the wall is complete. Dubbed Operation Verdun, after a famous World War I battle, the 3rd Brigade decided to blockade the village after calling it a staging point for attacks. A U.S. Army official said construction is expected to last several days. Captain Christopher Judge, in charge of the operation, said the wall's purpose in Alcinia, quote, is to separate insurgents from the population, end quote. But journalist Al-Azawi spoke about the pattern of isolating villages. It looks like the Israeli project in Gaza, where they try to surround them with walls. And it is the same as building concrete walls around Baghdad. If you take a close look at it, you will find, from an aerial view, that Baghdad now looks like a city of walls. Concrete fences are everywhere, just like Quds and Gaza. They will make IDs for all the residents in the village, block all the gates providing access to the village, ask people the purpose of their travel each time they enter or exit the village, and they will not allow anyone to get out of the village or enter the village after 9 p.m. It seems to be a new policy to punish the areas where the people are resisting the occupation. Similar walls have been built around Fallujah and Samara in recent months. Army commanders in Samara said the number of attacks dropped drastically after an 18-kilometer barrier was built around that city. Al-Azawi compared the operation to building a kind of concentration camp. 
They punish people by affecting them economically. The merchants will not be able to get their goods in or out of the village. The farmers will not be able to get their vegetables and fruits to the city. And they are destroying all of the soil and the environment around the village from all the sand. And it will damage the psychology of the people because they will feel as though they are living in a big prison. We heard that the Americans would bring democracy and freedom. This is totally against freedom. When they build a big wall around you, doesn't that make you feel like you are in a jail? If you come from West Iraq to Baghdad, you will see big concrete walls, barbed wire, watchtowers, and hundreds of surveillance lights around the American bases. And all the electricity for these lights is coming from Iraqi sources, while Iraqis need it in their homes. If they were to give this electricity to the houses, the Americans would never need all the security around them because people will like them and never attack them. With Salam Talib, this is Eliana Kaya for Free Speech Radio News. Kashmir is facing one of its chilliest winters with heavy snowfall while temperatures continue to drop drastically. As Shanawaz Khan reports from Srinagar, a scarcity of fuels in Indian-administered Kashmir's quake zones is adding to the survivors' hardship. It has been three months since a killer quake struck Kashmir and other parts of South Asia, and the survivors are already facing a tougher challenge, winter. Kashmir is currently in the midst of one of the coldest winters in recent years. The famous Dal Lake in Srinagar has partially frozen after two decades. The last time the lake had frozen was in 1986. The sub-zero temperatures are exacerbating the harsh living conditions for the people in the quake-affected areas of Kashmir. Salim Ahmad is a resident of Puri, one of the quake-affected areas in Indian administered Kashmir. If we start counting the problems we have, they are plenty. But right now the point is that our people are living outside in tin sheds, in areas where temperatures are 5 degrees or more below freezing. The tin sheds are no good for this weather, but the houses that are partially damaged are not safe for living. Salim is also a member of the Central Relief Coordination Committee set up by the NGOs Voluntary Association Network Kashmir and Confederation of Voluntary Associations Hyderabad. This weekend, the groups urged the government to provide firewood and other fuels to people in the quake-damaged region. We need fuel to keep ourselves warm. We urge the government to provide enough firewood and cheap fuel like kerosene so that we can have the means to fight the biting cold. And if we do not get these, then I think there could be many more casualties than what the toll was from the earthquake alone. Locals say a few people have already died because of cold weather. The harsh weather has also created health problems in the region. Hilal Ahmed Bhatt is an aid worker with Save the Children. Uh, if you go to Uri, uh, at the edge of, I mean, the sub-regional hospital, you'll find that it's jammed with patients, and most of them are children and women. And uh, these patients are, again, the victims of the cold weather, uh, like they have chest problems and the problems like running nose, fever. Bone-chilling cold is not the only problem. Hilal says many tin sheds collapsed in the heavy snowfall last week. Accumulation of snow on roads and hilly paths makes it difficult for people to make to hospitals and other places. The snowfall also triggered fresh slides, creating hurdles for transportation in the hilly region. 
and blocked access to some villages scattered over the area. The government had constructed some prefabricated sheds after the quake. But as Hilal says, the number of these sheds is very limited. Prefabricated sheds are really they are better than what we have there or what is the traditional way of having housing arrangement. But then they are very limited. You will find that prefabricated sheds, they have been constructed at different villages. But that is, I mean, they have made a sort of community uh, uh, residential thing, which actually nobody is using at the moment. Hilal says all the resources from aid organizations and the government need to be mobilized to protect people from exposure to harsh winter. For Free Speech Radio News, I am Shanawaz Khan. Bolivia's president-elect Evo Morales has wrapped up his visit to South Africa, where he met both political and business leaders as part of a worldwide tour that has already included China and Europe. Morales is headed to Brazil and Argentina next week, just ahead of his presidential inauguration January 22nd. Morales has said that his first measure as Bolivia's new leader will be to nationalize the country's hydrocarbons. FSRN's Deleta Varlese looks at what this move could mean in Bolivia's oil-rich region of El Chaco, where the indigenous community has long been affected by oil exploitation. On December 18, 2005, Bolivians cast an historic vote for indigenous leader Evo Morales. This date has been an historic one in the majority of Bolivians' opinion for those who voted Morales and for those who did not. The major concern of the population is the hydrocarbons nationalization. Many say this specific of Morales' policy is still largely undefined. During his first press conference, the day after he was elected, he described his policy in these words. We'll nationalize natural resources, natural gas and hydrocarbons. We won't nationalize multinational companies' assets. A week after the election, Morales had a meeting with one of the most important multinational oil companies in the country, the Spanish corporation Repsol. He assured the company's officers he would not touch their current holdings, but he will place limits on national contracts in accord with the new law on hydrocarbons. The move is expected to be one of the first official actions of Morales' administration. He will officially take office on the 22nd of January. His Vice President Alvaro Garcia Cialinera said the modification on this law will be executed as a decree in order to immediately make the changes that are urgently needed. The law on hydrocarbons under which oil companies are still exploring and extracting resources was redacted on 2002 under the administration of Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada. The majority of gas and oil fields are set in the southeast region of El Chaco which extends over the border of Argentina and Paraguay. However, the Bolivian part is the richest in these natural resources. Here it's also where there are the highest number of exploration and extraction wells. Ubaldo Padilla Perez is a Bolivian oil engineer. Underneath a thousand meters there's oil, but the perforation in the earth went further, down to 4,500 meters, and natural gas was found. All the wells are now set up to extract gas, and there's an enormous amount of it. On 29th of August 1985, the Supreme Court number 21060 opened a process of so-called capitalization which sold all national enterprises to foreign multinational companies 
The decree forced the sale of the national company YPFB, who entire holdings of oil and gas wells in the country were sold to a number of private companies, including Repsol of Spain and Argentina and to Petrobras of Brazil. One community in which Repsol is currently operating is called Puevo. First workers drilled the soil to find out the depth at which the gas is located. Martin Montero has worked in the field since 20 years. He explains what it was like to work for the nationally owned company YPFB versus the current owner Repsol. After this change, I can say that the YPFB's management was the optimal one. It was better, especially in salaries and work conditions. Now there's a lot of competition and it's really demanding not to get fired. This is our daily challenge as workers. Guarani indigenous community neighbors to gas and oil fields are the most affected by exploitation. Often the drilling affects underground water tables used by the community and change the direction of water flow. Above all, the water supply are polluted by chemical agents used by the exploration step. The most dire impact concerns the water table and soil condition, but also a level of social and cultural contamination, as Jesus Castillo explains. Castillo is responsible for environmental matters in National Guarani People Assembly. When companies get into a community, they start to break apart and disable the community structures due to the work expectation they put upon the inhabitants, expectations that they never fulfill. Another problem is the companies end up working in certain areas without our consents. Those areas are sacred for us and we want them to be respected. Indigenous communities' demands is that they be the first to benefit the gas extraction to have domestic gas in their kitchen since the gas pipeline to major Bolivian cities passes right in front of their houses. Guarani residents pointed out that multinationals pretend to have improved the community's quality of life but say they have seen none of the projects made with this purpose in mind. Etelvina Robles is a Guarani woman and community leader responsible for the mountain area called La Costa in Projects have to be invested in a productive way so they can double the community profits. Money donations are useless because today we have money, but who knows what will happen tomorrow. That's why projects made to improve living conditions are better. But they should stop saying we'll do it when they don't. There is great expectation by the inhabitants of this area for Morales government. They expected first of all to end with corruption and hope that state money devoted to communities project will no longer end up in just a few people wallets. The common New Year greeting is Buen Año Evo. For First Pitch Radio News, Diletta Varlese in Camiri, Bolivia. The city of New Orleans has unveiled a rebuilding plan that calls for vast changes to the city's neighborhoods and housing patterns. The proposal includes a four-month planning process and the possibility of using eminent domain to acquire land for the city from the homeowners. Mayaba Leventhal reports from New Orleans. 500 people attended a crowded meeting yesterday of the Bring Back New Orleans Commission, where Mayor Ray Nagin unveiled a $17 billion plan for redeveloping the city. Many homeowners, community groups, and even city council members quickly condemned the plan. ACORN, a community advocacy group, responded yesterday by saying that four months is not enough time for public input. They're filling the waters to see what type of reaction they're going to get out of the public, and every time they test the waters, we, we probably lose another 10 or 20 percent of our of our local people here. It's just, it's very confusing, 
and it's discouraging. Scott Higgy is the head of Acorn's rebuilding project. He says the mayor's plan doesn't encourage people to come back or rebuild in New Orleans. To prove their viability is, is uh, to see if they're going to come back and rebuild. How are they going to prove their viability? That No one's forcing the insurance companies to come forward with their settlements. They don't have no money to prove any viability. The, insur- the, the city has done sent nothing but confusing messages to all the homes in the area. They need to figure out what they're going to do and announce that after they, after they know what path they're going to go down. Kathleen Krause, a homeowner in the Lower Ninth Ward, says that she feels that powerful interests are trying to take her home and her neighborhood away. The fact that we have um, four months to prove our neighborhood is viable, yet um, there's a moratorium on all like rebuilding and permits, so no one's allowed to fix anything for several months. And um, plus the fact that we've only been allowed back in the neighborhood for a couple weeks anyway and most people aren't even coming back till the end of January because they've had jobs or relocation you know or children whatever and now they're not allowed to rebuild but if they don't rebuild they won't have a house you know obviously someone with more power and more money wants our property Many are also concerned about the role of the federal government in both public housing and the levy systems. This morning, 200 high school students and New Orleans residents held a demonstration in the French Quarter calling for Category 5 levy protection for the entire city, prompted by a visit by President Bush. As of today, the city has not said when its redevelopment plan will be finalized. For Free Speech Radio News, this is Maya Belibenthal. And we just heard a special program featuring Free Speech Radio News stories preempted earlier this week. Stay tuned for today's Free Speech Radio News coming up. This week on KPFA's Sunday Salon, in our first hour, we'll take a look at Iraq. What's happening there, and why aren't we getting information from on the ground? This week on KPFA's Another Sunday States Salon, in our first hour, we'll take a look week. at what happened to her. What effect does it have on those who are trying to cover the war from the Iraqi perspective? We'll take a look at that. And in our second hour, just how ghastly can it get?